Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It's my pleasure to welcome Stephen Dobby to the podcast. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, James. Excited to be on. Well, it's great to have you. Now, for those that may not be familiar with you, you are the co-founder and co-host of another maintenance podcast, Maintenance Disrupted. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, fairly similar to yours, really. Uh, we have a lot of the same guests, uh, talk about a lot of the same subjects, um, but it's you know it's it's a lot of fun. It's really just about meeting people in the industry. Um, that are working on new and unique solutions and how they're bringing that to their operations and getting value from it. So it's, you know, I, I started it more or less a, a bit selfishly because, you know, I see all these experts out there and it was, how do I actually get some time with them to learn from them? And the <laughs> easiest way is apparently record your conversation and put it out for everybody else to listen to as well. <laughs> yep. That definitely is one of the advantages to running a podcast. You get to talk to all kinds of people you never thought you'd be able to talk to previously. Yeah, there's not much other advantage <laughs> other than the, the time and effort it takes to uh, put the rest of it in. So, Yep. And then aside from that, you're a maintenance engineer in the mining industry. Super brief, what else can you tell us about yourself, though? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a, a maintenance and reliability engineer there for tech resources. Um, I know I shouldn't be turning those maintenance and reliability terms together. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we're touching both areas of it. So, uh, been at tech for a couple of years now, we've been focused on, you know, our, our, I'm in our centralized maintenance group, which is, you know, transitioning the mines over different, different areas and bringing in bigger projects that to support, you know, ultimately moving more dirt and, and keeping the trucks and other equipment running, running longer. All right. Excellent. And, you know, within that industry, you're probably being heavily impacted by what a lot of organizations are looking at. And, you know, it's sustainability, right? Decarbonization, uh, electrification. There's quite a bit of different terms that I've heard out there, but I'm guessing you're being impacted by that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we're going with the decarbonization term, but certainly net zero, you, you name it. We've got a couple pretty aggressive targets. So the first one being um, in 2030, we have to reduce by 33% of what our expected GHGs would have been in 2030. And by 2050, we are, um, our target is to be a net zero company, which is, is definitely a big challenge because not all our um, carbon footprint comes from just operating equipment. There, there's other things around a mine site that release carbon just as a, a piece of it. So there's a lot of pretty exciting challenges to, to address to actually turn uh, a mining operation into a zero carbon um, entity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, we have our goals where I'm working. You know, I think it's net zero by 2030. That's where we want to get to. Um, so same sort of thing. We're looking at how do we make stuff more efficient? How do we degasify stuff? There's all kinds of things going on. Now, 
from a maintenance person, how is this impacting people? Yeah, that's a great question because it is um, it is a big impact, and we're often not thought about at the front end. Um, so let's take a mining truck is always a good example because you know it's it's pretty easy to understand. Most people understand it what a truck is and you think about your car at home or, or anything else it's really not that different and you take your truck to a mechanic to fix well um when it's an electric car probably not taking it to a mechanic anymore taking it to somebody with more of an electrical background and the reality is and at least where i'm at is we don't have a lot of electricians there's not a lot of people coming out of electrical trade school to support it we've got programs in development um but you know if we were to turn on electric cars tomorrow, we would not have the people needed to support them. Um, so that's really one of the biggest challenges is how do we take our existing workforce and start transitioning them, building them the skill sets that they need to support a decarbonization program and then maintain the equipment afterwards. Yeah, it's it's a huge change in the type of equipment, how the equipment operates. Like, for example traditional boiler, right? So you guys probably have some in some of your facilities. Most organizations have boilers. They could be natural gas fired, coal fired. They could be fired by all kinds of stuff. How they operate and the skill set required to maintain those changes, maybe not completely, but it changes quite a bit if you electrify them now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, another big challenge is, do you have enough power where you're at? So I live... (laughs) I wouldn't say I'm super, uh, I'm not really remote, like I'm a couple hours from a big city kind of thing. There's, but remote in terms of electrical infrastructure. So we have just enough power coming to our operations to support our existing uh, mines. So that's our, our, our coal wash plants and um, shovels are, are electric and those kind of things. But if we're going to add more assets onto the grid, we need to... S- really rethink what that grid looks like what our power usage looks like because there's there's not enough and it's going to need a lot more it's you hit a huge point so where i'm located down in southwestern ontario there's tons and tons of development going on and there's a waiting list to increase capacity at sites hydro one our provincial utility is running a new transmission line and it's not even built yet but they're running a brand new transmission line to support all this stuff and without that, new plants can come online. We can't electrify things as quickly as we want. And then on top of that, does your existing infrastructure to site support that? You have a transformer that's, say, 50 megs or 100 megs. Does your switchgear support that additional load? And then the other challenge that I'm seeing with that on top of it is, here's what we're operating now. We're generally operating pretty close to the the maximum rating of that that switch gear and transformers and all those great things. We know in the next three years, we're going to add 20 megs power as an example. So now we got to upgrade switch gear, but do we only upgrade it for that 20 or how far in advance is our decarbonization roadmap looking? So we're not having to come back and redo a hundred or $50 million substation upgrade again in another two or three years. Right? And it's a challenge because what can we gas or degasify or what can we electrify versus what can we not? What's realistic? What's not? How much, how's technology going to change that will impact what that power, power grid looks like? There's so many unknowns. It's, it's 
huge. It's so hard to properly plan this stuff out. Yeah, and it's funny because I think about where we've been. Like we've gone through periods of unparalleled growth and change and development in in different areas throughout the last hundred, two hundred years or whatever it is. Um, and w- when I think about that, I'm really seeing is where we're at now. Like we're going into another big period where we're going to need to make these major infrastructure changes that we haven't had to do for quite some time. Like a lot of our equipment that's out there and um, it, it's old and it's great to hear that there's plans going in place down in the lower mainland or sorry, not the lower mainland, other side of the country uh, down in, in Ontario there. But, you know, when you're looking at more of the rural places and where there's these operations and bigger industrial centers, there's not necessarily the same urge to develop that infrastructure or same focus on it, whether it's a lack of belief that maybe things aren't going to progress as fast as we think they are, or just not understanding that, you know, 2030 is only eight years away. And that's not a lot of time to plan and build the infrastructure that is actually needed to support it. You know, you think about, uh, I think Canada just announced that no more uh, internal combustion engines can be sold on uh, passenger vehicles for after 2035 in Canada. Well, what does that look like for that charging infrastructure? Um, most towns and most neighborhoods couldn't support more than one, more than a handful of vehicles being fast charged at the same time. Trickle charge, sure, that's no real different than what we're doing now. But if you want to fast charge something, then that's a lot of power draw all in a very short period of time. And we're not set up for that. Not and so we not even the infrastructure. <laughs> like not even the infrastructure. The power generation. Where's this power coming from? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've <laughs> been turning off our, our coal fire plants and um, for good reason, but they haven't been necessarily replaced by the same level of infrastructure to supply that that base load. What I'm really excited about, and I'm painfully uh, unaware of the details around it, but I've started looking into like what those smart grids look like and, and how they're, we're setting up the, the small generators in neighborhoods that just supply a neighborhood and, and, you know, the different creative ways that we're actually tackling um, the power generation so that it's a lot less centralized, but that has an interesting maintenance impact on it as well, in my opinion, because like we, we no longer have technicians sitting and supporting one big power facility now we've got tri- technicians that have to drive around supporting all these little turbines, little um, whatever is producing the power. And it's a very different way to operate a maintenance crew than, you know, a lot of our traditional uh, maintenance facility or uh, power generation facilities have operated. Yeah. And it's not even just, you know, the small generation facilities within communities. That might be the solution to operations like you're at or like I'm at. Right, because if utility can't supply it, then do we look at generating our own through solar, wind? I got the Detroit River behind me. Right? Can we get a water turbine in there to pull power? There's all these other things that we could do, connect to our facility, generate our own power, independent of the grid. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a lot of mines actually do that already. They have they build dams, they build other things to supply the power. Like they're, you know, you think about those mines. Uh, those diamond mines up in uh, um, the Northwest Territories, there's no infrastructure there. So they have to produce all their power locally, most of which is done via 
gas or um, or coal at this stage. But you know, what does that translation look like for those facilities? Because it's going to be, you know, Northwest Territories. A dam is probably going to be pretty tough. <laughs> so solar power only going to work half the year. A little more reliable for the full summer, I guess, but uh, clearly not available in the winter. Um, so it's, you know, it's a complete paradigm shift on the way we operate and maintain equipment. And, you know, it's pretty exciting. Um, like I said, it's all, these are all, all just problems to solve. It's not, none of these are, are anything that we'd have as a deal breaker or anything, but it's just problems to solve. Yeah. But as we electrify all these things, whether it's micro generation at site, whether it's getting power from utilities, which then potentially comes with increased voltages, different types of equipment, all these other things, it changes a tremendous amount in our maintenance program, training, tools, parts, everything. It's a, it's a huge shift. And I don't know if every organization is ready for it. How are you guys preparing for it? Oh, it's, it's a big question. Um, and the reality is we're, we're not ready for it and we are companies are not ready for it. And we're, everybody needs to make the plans to get ready for it because the impact is going to be huge. What is good though, is there's been a lot of like winter, wind turbine power generation schools showing up. There's been a lot of solar panel, uh, power generation schools showing up and, those skill sets, when you look at the rest of decarbonization, even looking past the um, just the power generation side, but also the um, the the operation side of the end users of the power, all the equipment that's coming out out of those is essentially the same skill set. Like you're, and so we just need to expand those, get more people rolling through those because the electrical infrastructure and parts and all that stuff isn't new parts. It's all old, older technology just being used at a scale we haven't used it before. And so it's bringing in, it's bringing in the right training programs that already exist and upskilling the workforce. Like, um, and, and that's the reality of it too, is you're not going to be hiring this labor because there's not going to be enough. And then you're going to have a bunch of labor that's not going to have enough work to do. Um, but if you bring in these training programs and start bringing them in now, supporting your existing electricians with their uh, existing infrastructure, and you upskill the existing teams, then you're going to really start to bridge that gap. You're going to set up technicians that are certified in, in both mechanical and electrical work and whatever it might be. And they're going to be far better able to support your operation as a whole because they'll have that more holistic view going to be, um, you know, jack of all trades more so rather than just, you know, you're just our mechanical specialist, you're just our electrical one, right? So I, I think in the end, it's actually going to result in a stronger uh, technical skill set, but we have to put the plans in to get there. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out Iridicio's IBL blended learning for maintenance and reliability professionals. This SMRP-accredited, project-based curriculum will take you through all aspects of a maintenance and reliability program and provides you with all the tools you need to generate a 30 times return on investment for your organization and a set of credentials from the University of Tennessee for you. You can find out more at ibltraining.com. And, you know, I agree 100%. We got to put the plans in. We got to start sooner rather than later. Um, 
one of the challenges is like, aside from the skill set, is with the parts, right? You mentioned that, yeah, a lot of the stuff is old technology just being used differently or in a larger capacity. But because every organization is going about and doing these types of things right now, combined with some of the supply chain issues, the lead time for some of these components is getting astronomical. You know, you're getting companies that aren't even bidding on multi-million dollar transformers. Or they are, but it's a year and a half wait. Like there are these other challenges that upskilling, doing the design, doing the engineering, and actually getting the parts in, in place and the infrastructure in place to support this. We got to be thinking two, three, four years ahead. Yeah. So um, yeah, the supply chain, um, you know, when we're looking at that supply chain, you're right. It's what is available and what we need don't match. And there is a, big manufacturing shortage and you know all the global events between over the last couple years between covid and and other areas impacting supply chain like it's all culminating into this perfect storm of we have this major decarbonization thing to get through but we don't have the parts or supply chain to support it when realistically a couple years ago we we did (laughs) and um so how do we increase our manufacturing for those those items? Um, like we're going to need to bring facilities likely closer to home um, so that we're manufacturing more of them locally. They're just the sheer amount that we're going to need is going to increase. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to be in the resource industry, which is having a great time right now um, with the supply of the commodities uh, or the cost of the commodities going through the roof. But that has a long downstream effect and you know when we're looking at decarbonization options that comes right through back to us like yes we're, we're selling our pr- products for a high cost but that also means the products we're getting back uh, and having to purchase are going to be expensive too so um but for companies that are trying to decarbonize but aren't in such a a strong position um within whatever commodity cycle that they're in it's it's tough and the capital is extensive um and something as simple as a semiconductor which really isn't that complicated of a piece but you need a a specialized facility to make it and there aren't that many in in the world and you know we're pumping out tvs like there's no tomorrow yet those semiconductors can be used for more the betterment of of the of everything right And, and decarbonization um so you know, I, I'm wondering if we're going to start to see more limitations on, or certainly cost increase on certain supplies versus some of the more necessi- necessary items to get us to the decarbonization. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought, right? We are we go buy your TV, iPhone, iPod, whatever it is, no problem. Trying to get VFDs and PLC controllers and various other things get a little more difficult. So, are we going to see a shift in that? It might or we may, but until we do, this decarbonization is becoming a challenge because of those supply chain issues over and above, which forces us to look farther and farther ahead, which is harder because we might not have the the exact solution that we're going to go with in three, five, 10 years from now. That technology might not even be here yet. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you look at the supply chain as that major carbon producer that it is, 
you know, if, if we're going to decarbonization, decarb our operations or get to that net zero, that also includes supply chain. And if we're shipping parts overseas, um, so by boat, by rail, by train, um, by plane, whatever it is, however we're shipping it, that has a carbon impact. And to get to a lower carbon state for the 2030 goals and then ultimately a net zero, you have to find a zero carbon solution for that as well. Um, and that's, that's not easy either. You know, we've got electric trucks coming in development and things like that as well to support it. But ultimately, making that supply chain shorter is going to be the most effective way to reduce that carbon footprint. So I wonder if we're going to see more of a, a shift because we, we did these big manufacturing facilities and we talked about it with uh, the power generation. Um, are we going to start to see more targeted supply um, supply chain pieces? So the, the manufacturer, are we going to go to a lot of smaller facilities instead of the, the one big facility? Um, so I'm interested to see how all this plays out. and But that obviously has a direct impact because a lot more smaller maintenance facilities means a lot more requirement for technicians for those facilities um, and a bigger maintenance cost because you're support maintaining more assets just at, a, at that smaller scale. And so uh, I'm wondering if we're going to start to see in the already short market for skilled trades, if we're going to keep seeing that um, – yeah, that demand increase and and the availability of those people just not being there. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be an interesting one. I think it's that's gonna be primarily driven by to your point is how can we decarbonize the supply chain piece? If it's electric trains, more electric trucks, then that may reduce some of it. Right? It won't won't get rid of it completely, but it would reduce the carbon footprint of the supply chain significantly. There's going to be, that's tough. It's going to be a trade-off because like you said, now you got more people supporting less or smaller, smaller facilities. It'll be a challenge, right? We'll have to leverage more and other technology, you know, remote monitoring, all that other stuff and leverage more and more of that to overcome some of those challenges, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we can change things, change things up as well. Like, you know, instead of sending a, I don't know, an engine out to a rebuild facility, maybe we have to just bring the parts for that engine, which are lower weight, easier to ship. And we're not shipping this heavy, expensive core or engine block, essentially, back and forth. And we just send the smaller pieces and reassemble them at site. And so then we need that that other skill set um, at site as well, the ones that are targeted and, and not just part swappers on some of the bigger, bigger piece assets that we're running, but more of that finer uh, precision maintenance requirement that we don't often need at site because we send that to an offsite facility that's specialized in it. Um, there's so many creative ways to resolve the issues, but it's, it, it gets scary when you start looking at the actual requirements from skill sets to cost of tooling and all those things, right? It's, um, and, uh, you know, the reason we're having this podcast is clearly because it's not a small issue. It's, it's a big paradigm shifting way of doing business for everybody. Even if you're in a fairly low yep. carbon intensity operation already. 
Yeah, it is going to be a major shift. Like you said, skills, infrastructure for maintenance activities, all those things are going to change dramatically. Now, to kind of wrap this up, what what do you recommend to the people listening that they do to try and get ahead of this a little bit? Yeah, so uh, I actually just had somebody on my podcast, um, Luisa De Silva from an organization called Iron and Earth. And she's her organization is helping train people and putting out free courses to train people to start moving into this net zero economy. So um, there's some stuff out in Alberta that's happening. It's um, where she's they're providing a training course for an installation of a wind turbine, an installation of solar panels. And so there's options there. And just look up ironandearth.org um, and you can get to everything there. But it also in there will help you chart the course for what is your existing job role um, and what opportunities exist in that zero carbon space already. And also what training options are there for you to get that upskilling that you might need to move for it. So really the biggest thing, like if you're listening to this podcast, um, you're clearly interested in some level of self development because um, you're probably listening to to this not at work not on work time maybe on your commute whatever it is um, but you can also start using that time that you dedicate to listening to our podcast and things like that to work on that self-development piece you're already doing those training courses you just got to target those training courses to that decarbonization so if you're a mechanical background start taking electrical courses I think edx.org has a very specific course on decarbonization. Um, I signed up for it and then never got the time to actually do it. So I'm going to sign up for that one again. Um, but it's really just, you know, look what's out there. It's it's a huge topic and there's lots of new training coming out. You just got to put yourself into it, right? Yeah, absolutely. You got to understand it, start, tra- start learning about the technology, what's coming, and then start building a plan to uh, make sure your organization is ready to ready to make that transition. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today about decarbonization. But before we go, can you share with people where they can find out and get it, find out about you, get in touch with you, your podcast, maintenance disrupted, all those great things. Absolutely. So you can always find me on LinkedIn. That's going to be the best place to get in touch with me. Uh, you can Google Stephen Doby or put into LinkedIn, Stephen Doby, and you'll find me. Um, as well, you can go to maintenancedisrupted.com, uh, and that'll get you to our podcast. Um, and yeah, like I said, those are going to be the best places to, to, to find me there. So no, thanks for thanks for letting me come on, James. Really appreciate it, and really fun talking about this. Hey, clearly a bit of a passion subject for me, and I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what happens in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, and I think we're all going to learn a ton while we make that transition. Absolutely. And I think we're going to make a ton of of mistakes on the way too. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thanks again for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, James. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com. And by 